Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, hello, church. First of all, very briefly, don't want to make this about me, but thank you for all your, your prayers, um, reaching out to Miss Cami in particular to offer help and the like. I, for those of you not in the loop, I had um, emergency uh, abdominal surgery just last week, and they, they had to do quite a lot with my small intestine. So sitting up here is not the most pleasant of experiences, but I want to be with you, and I love this church. So that out of the way, I want to tell you stories today to help you get in place what happened to the church. You see, we went from a place where Jesus, an itinerant rabbi, walking about the countryside, speaking by roads, speaking by the sea, sitting down and eating simple meals of bread with people, became, uh, 400 years later, a militarized formal ecclesiastical structure with fancy big buildings that took the wealth of the community to build and impoverished many communities while it lined the pockets of religious leaders. How did this happen? And why is it that 2,000 years later, we are still doing much of the same? We're still moving away from the roads and by the lakes and in people's homes, and instead trying to pour our money into a central edifice with rules, restrictions, conformity, and those on the top to make sure that it stays that way. And even more, early Christians, as we've talked about a little bit, and we're going to talk more about today, found that their leaders had now linked arms with the government. And therefore, they were an arm of the government, and indistinguishable and inseparable from the government. And we find in our own times, people either crying out for religious leaders to become the leaders or that the leaders become linked in to their church and their concept of morality. In other words, to enforce everything as if we were government people and not the followers of an itinerant Jewish rabbi who walked with us and ate with us and once told us he had nowhere even to lay his head. And it wasn't as a, um, as a complaint, but as a statement of watch what I do. Remember who I am. Well, in the first 400 years after Christ, Christianity had changed. At first, it had split from the Jews slowly painfully, a lot of wrong done on both sides there, and the, the history of that will never be pretty. And then the Romans began to go after it. And most emperors, but not all by, by any means, but most emperors used them as scapegoats to kill the Christians, to blame the Christians. And so we have a whole book, the book of Revelation, that is written to warn us against ever linking arms with earthly power 
with ever joining the beast of, uh, of world empire-like power. And yet, as soon as it was given an opportunity in the 300s, when as soon as Constantine could round up who he felt were the leaders of the church, and most of them were, to be honest, they were leaders, but then get them into one area in these councils and say, decide the doctrines, and now let's do conformity. Everything changed. Now Christianity became an arm of the government. And by the way, a lot of Christian leaders believed that the government was merely an arm of Christianity. If you remember, it was, it was the popes who crowned emperors. It was the popes and the priests and the bishops who crowned kings. Napoleon, in a very famous act of hubris, took the crown away from the pope and put it on his own head. And that sent earthquakes through the entire system. But anyway, this church now looks upon the government as you are supposed to help us enforce the conformity. It's rather like now a franchise, where if you go into a franchise and you've been in that franchise before, it doesn't matter whether you're in Des Moines, Iowa, whether you're in Toronto, Canada, you know what's going to be on the menu because the franchise is set up to be conformed. And that's what happened. We got cookie-cutter Christianity but also corrupt Christianity, where any time that you put money and power into the hands of the few, you get corruption, period. There are no exceptions to this, because we as human beings were not created to be lords and rulers over people and take their stuff and use it for ourselves. That's not Jesus's pattern, and that is not God's intention. And yet, it's where we were. So a hundred years past the first of the councils, evangelism was dead. The church was sputtering. The church approved and molded by the Roman Empire held very powerful sway over its territories, absolute power over its territories. However, it had stopped adding more territories except through conquest. Very much, for example, like the Islamist. If you take a look, the, the homeland of Muhammad and his religion is what we today call Saudi Arabia. And yet it has spread into so many other countries and it did not spread through evangelism. It spread through military conquest because it is an, a military conquest-based religion. That Christianity turned into that for a while when the Roman church and the Roman army were indistinguishable. <coughs> Excuse me. So they had vast territories, of course, in Italy and around Europe and over through North Africa, eastward through the uh, current nations of Turkey, uh, Jordan, Georgia, Kazakhstan, and the like. Um, but they weren't going any further. They couldn't go unless the Roman army went. And the Roman army at this time in the 400s was beginning to feel overextended and the corruption back home, both in the church and in the government, which they would not have said both as, they were the same, uh, had, had such corruption that now enemies coming in were sacking Rome, attacking their home base. But what was there was calcified. This is the way it is done. This is what is acceptable. It has to be done this way. And that still lingers on. I have been in churches 
where they fought over whether when you take the Lord's Supper, you're allowed to have one cup that you pass around or whether you're acceptable to have many cups so that you don't pass the same cup around or whether you break the bread before you pray or do you pray and then break the bread and thousands of other issues like this dividing things because you've got to be calcified. You've got to be perfectly formed. It's got to be cookie cuttered. No wonder Europe entered what we used to call the dark ages. And then people have recently, I'd say in the last hundred years, began to try to shove that one aside and call it just the middle ages. But Europe was dark. It was pre-civilization in many places. And where the civilization was, it was nasty, brutish, and short. The ruling people were the rulers and everybody else were serfs. And if you were in this fiefdom, you lived your life in service to this particular Lord who promised you protection, but most often did not provide it, who taxed you so that your children starved. That was Europe. Europe was a dark, dark place to be. And Christian priests did walk those streets, but they did not walk them alone. They came with the hobnail boot-like sounds. They didn't wear hobnail boots back then. Of soldiers stamping on stone and on dirt as they marched in. The church cross now flew alongside the Roman eagle of the legions. And so whenever you read something and it will say, the people of this region of France were converted. They were not converted in the biblical sense. In a biblical sense, it would mean that they were now, uh, they had repented of their sins and they had turned to Christ and given their life to him. No, they had submitted to a powerful ruling church that came backed up with with spears and swords. They had submitted. They were not converted. They were controlled. They had bowed the knee. Very much again, as we have seen uh, since the rise of Islam in their territories. You don't have to believe. You just have to behave and say you do and do all of the outside forms. And you do it because your leaders did it. And they did it because military might. And so all through these years, the, the Christian church made no real inroads through areas that we would today call France, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. However, they were not the entire story. The fact is, the church, once formed and conformed by Roman authority, it was an authoritarian church. It was not an organic changing the hearts, the minds, and the lives of the people. It was switching from this ruler to that ruler. And that was it. In fact, we have a lot of records of people back then expressing this. Those that were brave enough to express in writings that this week we may be following this God. Next week, that God. It doesn't matter to us. It is merely we've got to survive. It's amazing. And it breaks your heart. It's the very opposite of grassroots. And the um, spiritual leaders of Rome, they were to make you conform and submit. You had to bow your knee. And, And yet, we even see that today in churches. If you don't believe these things, and you can't, you can't be here. And if you don't sign this statement of faith, you can't teach in this preschool. Now, some of these we can understand. If there was an atheist 
who also believed that uh, pedophilia was fine. We don't want that person teaching our preschool. We get this. But whenever I look at these statements, and I have them brought to me frequently, because people will come to me, or because we are house churches all over, somebody will send one to me and say, I'm not sure I really want to sign this. And as I go down through, it is not just the simple faith in Christ. They're adding on all of this, these barnacles that have attached themselves to our ship of faith. And you're supposed to do it all or no job for you. It is terrifying and sad, but it started here. If you decided to resist Rome and you decided you did not want to bow your knee to the, uh, the priest authority, you found yourself excommunicated, which meant it was a death sentence. Often it was a death sentence. They remember the, the Spanish Inquisition, among others, where the Dominicans tortured, took land, property, killed people. Uh, it, was, it was horrible. And yet they all did it in the name of God. They did it because they were a part of earthly power and assumed that's what God wanted, even though we follow a Christ who walked alongside the roads and didn't even have a place to lay down to call his own. Let's sail across the seas. Let's go far north. In the north, the Romans had had problems. In England, they had done well, but whenever they started pushing into what today we call Scotland, they would have called Caledonia, um, or, and the, the people of the time would have called Alba. They were repelled enough to where they built a wall to keep the Scots on that side of it. Later on, they would push past that and build another wall. But by that time, Rome's empires were, were shrinking, and they had to pull back. And Ireland never really fell under their sway. But Christians were there. As we told a wee bit of the story of St. Patrick and how he got there. And if you miss that, please go back to one and two. Uh, make sure you get that foundation. How did they do well when the rest of Europe was not doing well? Well, one, they were an one another church. This will be a nice, if you, if you have a, with your house church gatherings and like, if you, if you have a ladies group or a men's group or a Bible study group that's mixed or however you do it, it would be very interesting for you to go to one of these Bible programs. You know, there's Bible.ca, there's Bible. Uh, dot, you know, there's Gateway, Bible.Gateway. There are a lot of them, and put in in quotations so that you get both words, one another, and look at the number of times that is the description, description or the um, the direction given to early Christians. It truly in the Bible saturates it. It's rather like love and grace. Once you see it, it, you see it everywhere. One another, one another, one another. Not top down, not my rules you, you follow or you're in big trouble and your kids go to purgatory and all that other. No, one another. You as a leader were in the Celtic church. We're expected to pray with the people, stay with the people, listen to them, work with them. God was brought into the middle of life. I have several books, such as the Common Gadelka, which is a collection of Celtic prayers. And what is staggering is the number of prayers through the day. There was a prayer upon waking. There was a prayer upon tending the fire, the first fire of the day. There was a, there was a prayer upon setting food above the fire 
to cook for breakfast. There was a prayer before you left the house. There was a prayer before you began tending the fields because or pastures. And it went on like this all day long. Prayers guided you through the day. And you, as a person, did this directly to God. You were not praying through saints. You were not praying through a priest. You were speaking directly to God outside in a non-sanctified, non-holy area as an individual that God loves and whose love you wish to return. Church was a practical help in everyday life. In fact, they would not have said it that way. They did not look upon church as a monolithic, you know, the church and the church this. And they would have said the, the Jesus people, the friends of God, uh, Christians, as we might call them, they were the ones who lived among you and they were a practical everyday help. You see, it wasn't a building. It wasn't an organization. It was the people you knew who were all around you and who walked with you every day. You didn't go to church. In fact, that entire concept of a building being a church, we have to go back and blame King James uh, the first of, of, of Breton, but he was King James of Scotland first. Before and it's a long story. Uh, and he, yes, he's the one behind the King James Bible. And he did not like it when it was first translated and there was no central gathering place required. Instead, it would say congregation or the gathering. And so he required them to go put in the word for chapel, a church, a place, so that you would have to go to a place to be acceptable to God. That concept is Roman. And it has stuck with us all of these years. It's just not a part of the Celtic mindset of this time. Believers gathered to be sure. But buildings were not part of the plan. And what buildings they did have were generally dormitories. Or places for um, solitary people to, to live. And they were like beehive huts. No adornment. Nothing special. The whole group built everything. Nobody got anything better than the others. There was no animosity toward buildings. They just didn't feel the need. Instead, they believed that there was value in worshiping under the open sky or among friends in their homes, just as Jesus and the apostles did. In less than three generations, that simple little group of Celtic Christians converted all of Ireland. Now, I don't want to make the same mistake that people make in saying, well, the entire nation... Well, I'm sure there were people in Ireland who were not converts, who had not been baptized, or who were baptized merely outwardly with no change inwardly. I'm sure of that. But it had changed the national character so much that evil was no longer tolerated. They were the first nation to ban slavery and free slaves. They were the first nation to do many of this sort of thing because evil was not tolerated. It was shameful now. Think of cigarettes. Back when I was growing up, cigarette commercials were everywhere. Doctors were pushing the best ones for your throat. President Reagan, I did not see this except in replay, uh, back in the black and white TV days, uh, did commercials for how great these cigarettes were. And you walk into any restaurant, you're on any plane, and there might be a smoking section, but there's no division between you. In fact, on airplanes... The ridiculousness was there was a smoking, then non-smoking, then smoking, then non-smoking. So it just made sure the whole building, uh, the whole plane filled up with smoke. Why is that not now? Well, because in the late 60s, there became 
this movement to say it is not acceptable. This is not good for you. It's not good for your children. It's not good for anybody. And they pushed hard. And so now you still see smokers, but they're generally outside huddled in the little lepers circle outside of a building. Because the society said, we no longer will tolerate this. And by the way, you can tell how Christian a society is by what it shames and what it proclaims. But that's another sermon. We, we mentioned, uh, what was it, two Sundays, three Sundays ago, Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. That sounds like hyperbole, and perhaps in some senses it is. But whenever the, the Vikings came in and the Romans left and things went dark all over Europe, it was in Ireland that the scriptures were preserved. And it was in Ireland that the, the monks not only kept things going, but they grew the church and they exported the church. It is amazing whenever you start watch it, you know, watching it. And this is why we're talking about this. Because of all the resets we've had, Everything from, and I mentioned a bunch of them, so I'll just do a couple recent ones. The 60s countercultural revolution to um, uh, the rise of far leftism deciding that family is the danger and men are evil and that the state must run things and the rise of communism. COVID and that hard reset and the way that that has destroyed trust in so many of our institutions. We are in a fractured, broken world where the social contract we all assumed would be there isn't there. And you assumed your neighbors would disapprove of things, but they don't. And many of them, in fact, not only don't disapprove of them, but they insist that you approve of what 10 years ago all of us would have been appalled by. Now we're told to celebrate. How do we reach this world well you're not going to reach it by doing what you used to do by building churches and doing conformity getting the leaders in place making sure they haunt you know, haunt the hallways to make sure everybody's believing right and behaving right that's not going to do it churches are closing all over the united states they've already closed all over canada all over great britain all over europe they are closing so many places. And I know a bulk of our, of our listeners are from the USA. And we're all very, very tense as we're in an election year. Frankly, are we not ever in an election year anymore? It is growing tiresome. We see churches that split last time and the time before that. And it split during COVID. It's not going to be any better this time. Those, those structures that requires so much to be maintained, not just physical structures, but ecclesiastical structures, the, the enforcement of conformity, the power structures in these things are collapsing. And no matter how much people would like to yell around and say, no, no, this church is growing. If you look, they're not new converts. They are rearranging sheep. The closing, failing places sometimes send sheep in and they grab the sheep but they're not making new sheep. George Santayana famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. We need to go back. We need to go back to see what worked during the Dark Ages. What worked when the standard church model failed? 
in Scotland, uh, Columba did much of the same work that Patrick did in Ireland. But Pat, uh, Columba based himself on the tiny island of Iona. He didn't put himself in the middle of the people, and therefore his work wasn't as successful as, um, as Patrick's was by any measure. That might be why he didn't convert the whole of Scotland, but only parts of the south and the west. He was mainly a preacher, and he did not, and his monks did not. And by the way, monks back then, they could marry, they could have families. It was all, the Celtic church was different. Uh, they, they didn't get as involved in the lives as Patrick's people did, and therefore didn't work as well. By the way, before anybody emails me, I know that Columba himself was Irish. In fact, the name Scotland comes from Scotty, the cloud, uh, a, a uh, tribal group from Ireland. So, yeah, I know that. Then there's Aidan. And Aidan and his people moved into northern England and worked with Germanic tribes there, the Angles and the Saxons primarily, but also the Jutes, which are kind of a Scandinavian group. Thousands of open church communities, open church communities, not buildings, were set up in England, Scotland, and Ireland while Rome did not plant one church and lost many churches. Columbanus was sent to Europe. Yeah, the Celtic church sent missionaries into the heart of Europe, mainland Europe. All during the failure and the collapse of the Roman system, the Celts moved in. In one generation, you ready? 60 new communities of faith in France, Switzerland, and get your seatbelt on, Italy. Yeah, Italy. The former home power of all this was not making new churches, but the Celts coming down were able to do that. And by the way, Rome's power right at that by this time was split with Byzantium, Constantinople, later called, today we call it Istanbul. We, we're going to keep changing its name too and, and make you keep buying new maps. In AD 60, I'm sorry, AD 670, Rome decided they could not tolerate this incursion upon their monopoly on religion. So they got their armies together now a collection of emperor, knight, nobles. Um, and they forced the Celtic church into retreat at the point of swords and with fire, with burning, with drowning, with stoning. They took over mission work and without fail, everyone that they took over flickered away and died within decades. And yet they kept going. Those that survived were mere ghosts of what they had been, just memorial markers of faith on the crossing in a desolate roadway. Rome, you see, insisted that you behave this way, that way, no exceptions. It was no, no longer wouldn't Rome do as the Romans do. It was when anywhere you do what the Romans do or we'll come at you. They launched wars against any believers who did not bow to Rome. They said, be this way. And by the way, this, it's not just Rome. Please understand, this is not an anti-Catholic screed here by any stretch. We love Catholics, they're Christians, and they love us back. But we understand none of us have a pretty history. None of us. In fact, in my religious tradition, I could always tell whenever we would see reports from Africa and we would see um, African men leading worship or the like, and they'd be wearing a suit coat in the horrific heat, sometimes torn, just a remnant 
But it's uh, it was that you you wear a suit coat uh, coat and you wear you wear you know white shirt because that's what we do. It seems ridiculous, but it's it can get even worse. Would you mind if I take up another minute of your time and you might want to you know tell the kids to be busy for a minute? A uh, very famous example of this that has been studied by missiologists for years was of a couple of Methodists uh, who went into Africa, uh, husband and wife, husband and wife. And they, they were going to reach this unreached tribe, but they were appalled that the ladies wore no tops. And they, uh, they decided, well, they must have no shirts. So they rode home for white blouses for all of these people. And whenever they arrived, they handed them out and the people were thrilled. They thought these were amazing. So the next uh, time came for worship, here come all the ladies wearing the white blouses with two holes cut out. Because in their society, covering this up meant that you were a prostitute. And the mission people didn't do their research. They wanted to make them look like they were in Ottumwa, Iowa. No, not conformity. Christ. That's what we're going for. Not conformity. And by the way, this, when the Romans launched against any unbelievers, it, it, the Albigensians, the Paulinsians, there were so many different groups. It was not about um, faith. But it was about secular power. And by the way, that's what drives all religious splits that I've seen in my life. They will put a faith veneer on it, but it's because this family wants to run the church and that family wants to run the church. Or this person's mad and going to pull their donation. How petty, how petty to say, I'm not going to give money to God through you because I want power over your decisions. But we have not learned that lesson, have we? It happens every single day. Let's pull back for a moment. And I don't want to go too long, but I'm, I fear I will. I want to apologize to our viewers outside of America because I need to use an illustration that may not have, it may not make, mean a lot to you, but I would really appreciate it if once you hear my illustration, if you have stories that are similar with brand names and products in your country, would you please email me that story or make a video and send that to me? Because I'd like to know. I want to I tell you something which is a phenomenon business studies have known for years. But it's hard to understand. In America, there used to be a massive discount store chain called Kmart. And it was part of the American culture. Everybody went to Kmart. And phrases from Kmart's advertising became part of everyday life. Blue light special and on and on. They started trying to um, increase the bottom line by selling cheaper and cheaper merchandise. And they didn't always maintain their stores like they used to. And people then began to shift their uh, shopping patterns away from Kmart. At the same time, one of the most iconic and important retail chain stores in human history was Sears, Roebuck & Company, mainly known as Sears. They sold everything, literally, from screwdrivers to prom dresses to washers and dryers to, to shoes. They sold everything, and they would ship you this massive catalog a few times a year. And the arrival of that catalog was a huge event in the life of every family that got one. And it was saved, and it was poured over. That's where you bought your stuff. That's where back-to-school clothes, Christmas stuff, every, even engagement rings, and firearms, everything out of that catalog. 
when Kmart started obviously going down the drain, they gathered investors and they bought Sears. Sears was successful, but they were able, Kmart people were able to get enough money to talk Sears people into buying it and we're going to merge it and make it wonderful. But all they did was strangle it and Sears went down the drain right alongside. And it was heartbreaking to see. The same happened with Kool-Aid. You don't know what Kool-Aid is. Kool-Aid is a powder. Uh, you can buy it in other forms. But for most of us, it's a powder. Put it into water, add a bit of sugar, and it, it flavored drink. And kids loved it. Families loved it. Um, and then other products came along that were tastier, better. There were even little tablets that you could put into water that would all go fizzy. And they tasted fantastic and had carbonation. Uh, probably all kinds of carcinogenic, uh, uh, you know, cancer-causing issues. But we still loved them. We loved all that. And Kool-Aid, realizing they couldn't compete with them, bought them and took them off the market. You see, here's the point I'm trying to make. Most of us know the phrase, the survival of the fittest. But we don't understand what it means unless you've read Origin of the Species and understood it. Survival of the fittest doesn't mean survival of the best at all. Sometimes the worst survives because of a variety of reasons. And here, there in business is one. But you know, another outbreeds it or uh, has a disease that works its way in. Survival of the fittest, the fittest aren't always the survivors. And the Celtic church, based on people, faith, and everyday life, was far superior and far more successful than anything out of Rome or later Constantinople. However, when the lesser gained, and this is so big, when the lesser grabbed hold of military and secular power in a gross violation of what Revelation taught us not to do, it was able to then force its will upon other believers at pain of death. It killed the faith. It drove much of it underground. It made church a thing one went to, obeyed, submitted to, and watched being done in front of them. Isn't is that the end of the story? Surely there's more. Oh yeah. Yeah, there is. If you go back to last Sunday, you will find exactly how St. Patrick's people worked within the community. Originally, that sermon was supposed to be today. But because of the emergency surgery and my inability to, uh, to be here, we had to put them out of order. So if we want to be really particular about the four we've done, um, this is part three. So it would be one, two, four, three. You might want to listen, go over that again. And we only do that to keep you on your toes, but also to remind you of this. This is a house church. The, we are not our safe harbor and you just happen to be watching. You are as much a part of this as we are. Your church, your house church, your, if you're by yourself on the couch, you are a location of the faith. And go back and listen to the four friends and how you can start doing the Celtic model to do what Jesus intended for us to do. Well, we must close. But just know this. God will take care of all of it. I, people often say, well, what... What does God think of? You know, why didn't God fix things quicker? Why didn't? Because God will save those even who get it wrong. He's not panicked. We are. But he doesn't panic. So, don't be a part of this fracturing world. Rise above it. Don't get involved with its mudslinging. Be part of its healing. And you can only do that 
by simple faith, quietly lived out in love. We'll talk more next time.